welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemarie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and of course, the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. John, more COVID-19 issues to discuss this week, and we'll just sort of do a whirlwind tour through some of the issues that you've been writing about at the blog. Uh, starting with this one, a lot of talk right now about potential bankruptcies in industries that are acutely affected by the shutdown. A lot of talk, too, about potential bailouts, given Washington's willingness to spend right now and this huge pot of money that's now sitting there at Treasury. But you made a point at the blog that gets elided a lot when the media covers bankruptcy, which is that bankruptcy and liquidation are not interchangeable terms. There is one type of bankruptcy, Chapter 7, that is liquidation, but that's not what we're talking about with for instance, the airlines. So why is that an important consideration when we're talking about whether or not these companies that have been affected that way should be bailout recipients? Yeah, um, it's all 2008 all over again, uh, which is a, a theme I think we'll talk about a fair amount today. Um, but um, as in 2008, the uh, government's response is to uh, bail out to keep these companies from failing, um, both uh, directly through uh, the stimulus, which promises to just give them money, and through the Fed, who is uh, lending astonishing amounts of money to companies to keep them afloat. Um, so the fact we all need to remember is that a bankruptcy does not mean you leave behind a crater where there once was a company. Uh, bankruptcy, in fact, is in the U.S. is bankruptcy protection. It's a uh, company's file for bankruptcy to stop uh, people who they owe money to from seizing assets and breaking the company apart. Uh, bankruptcy is a device for keeping the company going. Uh, what happens in bankruptcy is that the stockholders um, lose everything, and a lot of the bondholders uh, lose uh, some of their investment. They take haircuts, as we like to say. The bondholders become the new stockholders and, and get what they can from the company. Uh, and people who the company owes all sort of swallow hard and take hits. Uh, so if there were, um, you know, union contracts often get uh, torn up, uh, promises to pay high rents to rent uh, airline gates and things like that get renegotiated. Uh, and everybody kind of sits around and swallows hard and loses some money. Now, um, that's in, in some sense exactly right. Stockholders earned uh, good returns. They, they are essentially think of stockholders as insurance writers. They earned these good returns ahead of time by taking on the insurance that in bad times they were going to lose a lot of money. And these companies did uh, leverage up a lot. They borrowed a lot of money that put them closer to bankruptcy. The stockholders got even bigger returns as a result. Um, what we're doing now, basically, in society is looking around to see whose pots of money are going to pay to keep things going. And how about the people who signed up to write for the insurance actually paying some of that? I, I think there's a feeling it's not the airline's fault, and it certainly isn't the airline's fault. But when you buy stock and earn great returns, you're, you're writing insurance that doesn't say, oh, but if it's not the airline's fault the federal government comes in. I mean, it's really the stockholders or the taxpayers who are going to bail it out. Um, so I don't think we should be quite as averse to bankruptcy as we are. There was a case in 2008 that the banks were systemic. Um, 
Let, let me back up just a second. When you bail out, you're not bailing out the company. You are bailing out the stockholders and bondholders. Uh, and there was a case in 2008 that the stockholders and bondholders couldn't bear to take any losses because they, in turn, might bring down a house of cards. I don't think that's true, but that was the case. There's just no case that an airline is systemic. And most of our airlines have been through several bankruptcies uh, and kept flying through the bankruptcies and kept out. So um, uh, I'm not advocating widespread bankruptcy. I just I think it's a point that gets forgotten that this is the mechanism uh, that, that we're supposed to use. Yeah, and I do worry that um, we're kind of going into a repeated cycle of, of uh, government bails out everybody in bad times. I'll toggle you for a moment over from the economic side to the public health side, because you made a very interesting point at The Grumpy Economist about the way this disease is being modeled. And that may sound to our audience like a technical point at first, but I sort of implore you to ride this through with us to its conclusion, because this has pretty meaningful implications for how we actually go about combating the spread. And that is, you said, um, this is a quote, the reproduction rate, this is how many people get infected by one person who already has the virus. The reproduction rate is the average reproduction rate, but not everyone is average. Every interesting distribution has a fat tail. In this lies a great danger and a great opportunity, close quote. So explain what that means and what that danger and that opportunity is. Yeah, um, one of the greatest mistakes we all tend to make. Let, let's not let's not use the word model. <laughs> let's go, let's call it you know mental framework. Right. Uh, the the greatest one of the greatest conceptual mistakes we make in thinking about something is to apply the average to all individuals, um, and that's not the case. You know the the average income in the Bay Area may be something like a hundred thousand dollars a year, but there's a lot of people who earn more than that, and a lot of people who earn less. Um, um, the average doesn't apply to every individual. That's really important here. Um, because So what matters for the public health part of this crisis is to get the reproduction rate under one. What that means is uh, if you get it, do you pass it on to two people or do you pass it on on average to half a person? If you pass it on to two people, then they pass it on each to two more and the thing grows exponentially. If you pass it on to half a person, they pass it on to another half of that, a quarter, and the thing dies out. So the, the reproduction rate is the central thing for public policy. The, the big the one question for public policy right now is to get that average reproduction rate under one at without destroying the economy. But the average, we are not all average, uh, and the reproduction rate varies tremendously. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about super spreaders, the one or two people who seem to pass it on to uh, 50 or 100 other people. Uh, and that's right, that the that all interesting distributions have fat tails, meaning that uh, most of the spread of the virus is done by a small number of people who spread it widely. So even though the average reproduction rate is something like two or three, we're trying to bring down that average reproduction rate. Almost all of the reproduction is being done by a small number of people or activities whose reproduction rate is enormous. Uh, there's, there's almost no one who personifies that average. Uh, now, I think that is a deep, deep lesson. I think that's um, a, a, both a danger and an opportunity. Uh, the, the opportunity is that in order, you and I, left to our own devices, probably have a reproduction rate of uh, a tenth or a half. Uh, we get to work at home. We get to self-isolate. We wash our hands. It is not so much personal responsibility as it is the nature of our jobs. Um, uh, 
but there are people and activities who who are much more likely to spread it. So if we can just find, if you work on the big super spreaders, you can re, you lower the total of reproduction rate much more easily. You only have to get the, the big ones um, to, to get it down. And, and that means we don't have to lock down the rest of the economy. Um, formally, um, the, the fact I think is true that the economic cost is has nothing to do with the reproduction rate. Uh, in fact, the kinds of activities that tend to to spread it around are ones that are not very high uh, economic value. Uh, so that's our opportunity. Um, Instead of locking everything down, wasting an enormous amount of money, lowering your and my reproduction rate from 0.3 to 0.2, work on those tails, the 5, 10, 20, 30, uh, the people and the activities, the things causing the problem. And and I think if you can really lock down the worst 5% of the spreaders, um, you can leave 95% of the economy functioning quite well. Um, and, And... I think our politicians kind of have an intuitive sense of that. That that's why they lock down bars and restaurants and outdoor con- and, and concerts first of all. Well, we all kind of intuitively understand that's a super spreading activity. But now we're in this generic lockdown where we're all supposed to stay at home. And you know, you, you and me only walking the dog in a public park uh, once a day rather than uh, twice a day. That that's just that is the although walking a dog isn't a huge economic benefit, um, but but businesses that are the same that can operate the same way, closing those down has has enormous cost and very little benefit. So that's I, I think the let me try to back up again, restate the big picture. One, there's a huge variation in reduction in reproduction rate. There's a fat tail. Two, our our policy objective needs to be to get that reproduction rate under one without destroying the economy. It follows work most heavily on that right tail and let the left tail, let the activities that can be done uh, safely, let those reopen. You've been saying since we started having this conversation a few weeks ago that this can't be a dichotomy between a total shutdown on the one hand and totally back to normal on the other, that we have to find kind of a safe, guarded way to turn the economy back on. And you've been doing a lot of writing at the blog about many of the ways that we can think about doing that. Can we talk for a minute about the enthusiasm that you expressed a few days ago for group testing people for the virus? Explain to us what that means and what the advantages could be. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, a moment of over-enthusiasm followed by, uh, <laughs> uh, but there, there is enthusiasm. So uh, the immediate problem uh, the group testing came up with is uh, we need to test test people. We need to test asymptomatic people. You know, uh, a doctor pointed out a while ago, testing people who, when they come into the hospital and, and they're coughing and showing all the symptoms and then you test them, you know, kind of what's the point? You know, you know what they got. <laughs> Um, the, the one function of testing is to try to help manage sick people, but the function of testing we need to move towards is the public health function of testing. Uh, test people with no symptoms um, to let the ones who are free go out and to isolate the ones who, who aren't. The problem is we don't have enough tests yet, so how could you do that more efficiently? And the group testing idea is very, very clever. It's, it's something that's an old idea that's been around. But uh, take samples from 32 people, mix them, and and uh, test that mixed sample once. Now we find out if anybody in that group has it. Now, that's not very helpful for, for if you want to... Uh, 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 
prescribed treatment for the one who has it. But it's very helpful because uh, you immediately, if it comes out negative with one test, you know all 32 of those people can be cleared and go out to work. Um, and even if you want to find the one person, uh, then divide it into group of 16, groups of eight, and so forth. And you can work out that uh, you can much more quickly uh, with far fewer tests. It takes more time and fewer tests. You can find the people who have it. So group testing is, is a very nice idea, primarily for uh, certifying who doesn't have it. Uh, you know, even if you have to lock down a group of eight and not really find who has it in there, you've let everybody else go back to work. So I got all enthusiastic about group testing, and that seems to match a, a national enthusiasm from about three days ago. Things go fast. Uh, <laughs> for uh, testing is going to come save us. Uh, Abbott Labs came out with this test that, uh, you know, point of sale, bing, 10 minutes, you know, if you have it or not. As soon as they can make 330 million of those, we'll, we'll be all ready to go and test. Um, <laughs> which is, it is remarkable, uh, you know, that, that uh, once the government got out of the testing business and, and private companies started coming up with this stuff, what they've come up with is just remarkable. But we, we, have, oh, just, we have this vision of... Um, lock down the whole economy and wait for technology to come save us. And that's what I've backed off uh, a little bit lately. Uh, this idea of just lock everything down and, and wait for the testing. Then everybody gets tested and then you know exactly who does it and who doesn't have it and you can open everything back up again. Uh, since it's going to take a while for testing to come, uh, I, I think we need to uh, get to work in the intervening months or so on um, the previous idea, which is, you know, you got to let activities with a reproduction rate of under a half open back up again safely, you know, put, put the screens in so the cashiers at the Whole Foods aren't, aren't getting spit on all the time and start wearing masks and gloves um, and get the economy going again before testing and, and modern magic uh, comes to save us. Uh, last thought, you know, the, the 19th century We've had epidemics and pandemics over and over again. We're, this is nothing new. And um, public health did not consist of antibiotics. Technology didn't save us from tuberculosis. Public health saved us from tuberculosis, cleaning up the streets, getting people not to spit all over the place, um, municipal water systems. Uh, and and um, so, so we, we tend to not have a we don't want to have a good public health system. Instead, we just have technology come save us. So I'm back on, uh, uh, yes, it'll be great to have testing, but let's, um, let's in the meantime, also have a smart public health system. So sorry for going on a bit, but that you, you brought up a great point. Well, your Abbott Labs example calls to mind, this could be our final question, this juxtaposition between the public sector and the private sector. So you've been adamant since this started about the fact that most bureaucracies, that they can't innovate, even under duress, maybe especially under duress, that they, they just fall back on sort of road adherence to protocols. And you highlighted at the Grumpy Economist the other day a recent example of this with FEMA, which is just kind of astonishing. So walk us through what happened there and also where we're headed on this question of how much of this emergency production comes out of the public sector versus the private sector. Uh, yeah, that's, that is a, a wonderful uh, piece of news here. And I think we jumped to the conceptual framework, oh, this is a public health crisis, the government's got to jump in and do stuff, uh, which uh, is, is to some extent true. Uh, as as it does in war, um, but the um, the the innovation of the private sector has been remarkable. 
uh, compared to, <laughs> to the public sector, which is we've had so many snafus on the public sector. The, the CDC blocking tests for, uh, for, for months, the regulatory snafus here, there, and elsewhere. Um, it is actually waking up uh, lots of America to um, how much regulation is getting, that micro details of regulation are getting in the way of things. Uh, I recommend a, um, a marginal revolution link on uh, Governor Cuomo, the new libertarian, uh, <laughs> who, who has he had a wonderful staff work who discovered all of the state laws that were stopping uh, doctors from working, um, uh, occupational licensing restrictions so that people certified in another state couldn't come help. Uh, in fact, uh, this morning, this. Uh, one big problem that's going on in the health uh, sector is that uh, uh, demand is is cratering for uh, dentists, um, uh, primary care uh, people, um, orthodontists, all sort of people who could help, uh, and and uh, they're sitting around with nothing to do. Right. Um, but yeah, what we've seen so our mental thought is, oh, crisis, government's got to run stuff. But what we've seen is this tremendous innovation from the private sector, already even on the public health side, uh, long before anybody came up with social distancing guidelines from our authorities. The airlines, you know, were advertising on their websites, here's all our protocols, here's why our planes are, are as good as emergency rooms, you can come fly again. Didn't work for them, but they tried hard. Um, uh, Stanford University had a, had a set of protocols in place long before anybody's uh, public health departments told them what to do when which and then just told them shut everything down uh, you know we don't have time to think about how to do this smart and the tremendous the Abbott labs is is just the tip of the iceberg the tremendous innovation uh, I've seen all over the place now can that stuff get used fast um, I hope we still have you're, you're seeing the, uh, the certainly our, our public officials are aware of this stuff and and letting finally um, people innovate uh, things as quick as they want. But there's still lots of regulations that way, you know, try selling a home test kit uh, so that you could find out if you're uh, if you're sick. That that one just got blocked uh, recently. So but but um, it, it, all sorts of uh, interesting innovations are, are are bubbling up fast from the private sector. And I think that that is uh, what's eventually going to save us. So the, to close, the, the mental model of crisis, government's got to run things, turns out uh, to be very flawed. And even though there's a, a giant uh, externality here, uh, the uh, the private sector and, um, and, and the scientific sector uh, has just jumped in with remarkable uh, bubble up from the bottom innovation. Forgive me, John. I lied. This is going to be the final question because it occurs to me that we, <laughs> yeah, we, shouldn't, but... <laughs> we shouldn't finish this conversation without addressing this point. So the, the metaphor that we were using a couple of weeks ago was that we were trying to cryogenically freeze the economy so that you could unthaw it once the worst is passed. The analogy some people have been using in the interim is you're putting it into a medically induced coma. But the bottom line, so we're now a few weeks further into that project. It now looks like, based on what we're hearing from the White House and all the relevant authorities, that most of the country is going to be frozen for at least what looks like the entirety of the month of April. Now, you have already laid out for us the ways that we can start sort of clawing back from that. But in the absence of the kind of policies that you're suggesting, are, are there mile markers in your head, either in terms of just how much time passes or specific policy considerations that we have to watch out for in terms of tipping this over, where you say, if that happens, we might not be able to fully thaw out? 
Um, yeah, the question is thought how fast. Um, right. So does this end uh, the way? Is it, so in, in our joke version of it at home, the American economy seems to shut down at Halloween and reopen again January 2nd, uh, the great <laughs> annual vacation. Um so, uh, you know, the original vision is that that's how this would go. We would simply shut down for a couple months, uh, Zoom at home a little bit. And then once the pandemic is gone, there's no reason the economy can't just start right back up again the way it does on January 2nd. Um, now, uh, that this is not like that. Uh, as businesses go bankrupt, uh, as people lose their jobs, uh, and as I, I still worry about a, a looming financial catastrophe, then you've got an economy that's going to take a long time. Then, then it becomes recovery from a recession, uh, like the agonizingly slow recovery from 2008, 2009. And, and boy, would it be nice to avoid that. Uh, the, the, you know, when I'm up at two in the morning worrying about it, um, uh, the waves of bankruptcies of, of no, I said bankruptcy was a good thing, so let me um, let me be clear. Uh, liquidations, businesses that close forever. Uh, your local, when your local restaurant, when when they stop paying rent and their collateral gets seized and they're out of business, they're not going to start up again. That takes a long time to take an empty storefront, find a new tenant, develop a new menu, hire some new waiters, get going. Um, there's big demand shifts already in the economy. They're going to take time. We're, we're seeing, you know, people are going to move out of travel and cruise lines and into other kinds of businesses. And that takes time. Um, uh, and, and if this, so, so, uh, business is shutting down forever and people losing jobs permanently and having to go find other jobs. Uh, those are, are the kinds of recoveries that isn't like just January 2nd, where we all go back going again and leads to a longer recovery. Um, when I look at uh, upcoming Grumpy Posts will look at what the Fed is doing. Uh, we are really moving towards a couple of months of the entire economy being kept afloat by by just an ocean of printed new money from the Federal Reserve. Um, that that has its own dangers. Um, uh, and what you can see in the immense size of the Fed's reaction is they are also worried about a, a huge financial crisis, which would then just leave us to a, a really a, a long, it would be a Game of Thrones winter uh, if that <laughs> happens. So there's, um, I am very worried about this thing lasting longer. Um, we are what, what's happening. Our government is using the word stimulus uh, for for what they're doing. It's not stimulus. It's band aid. It's it's keeping the patient alive. It's not what gets the patient going again. Uh, and and if it takes trillions and trillions of newly printed money just to keep it sort of alive, uh, month after month, um, I, I think that's very worrisome. So that's why I, I really want to. I really hope that they're working on uh, open up what can be open up smart. It's not that hard. We just need to get our officials past everything open and everything closed. Um, uh, places where there isn't a lot of virus can get going. Uh, give us, you know, let us develop some protocols where businesses can can work with relative safety. All you got to do is that business and that person has a reproduction rate of a half and, and they can open again. All right. Lots for us to talk about in the future. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.